Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast with Brian Moran, sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Now, here's your host, Brian Moran. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast. My name is Brian Moran, and I am your host. Today, I would like to welcome a very special guest to my show. Richard Saul Warman has been called the father of information architecture. He started the TED Conference in 1984, the TED Med Conference in 1995, and he is the author of 90 books, including his latest, Understanding, Understanding, which we will discuss today. Richard's latest project, the Urban Observatory, is an interactive exhibit that gives people a chance to compare and contrast maps of cities from all around the world, all from one location. It is the first exhibit that I know of, of its kind. Welcome to the show, Richard Saul Warman. When you say you're having a very important guest today, is there anybody you would interview you wouldn't start by saying, oh, we have a very important guest today? I mean, that's your job is to get people who you feel are that way, and they're either lesser or better than what you're saying. But that's such a throwaway line, very. <laughs> uh, you, you know, you're probably right, but you on my on my hit list for podcasts, you were literally at the top. So uh, maybe I should have said it that way. All well, my guests are when you introduce somebody at, at any time, instead of saying they're very important, oh, this person is spectacular or all that, just a little the personal. The nature of the introduction, if it has something personal about it, even though we went swimming last week and I noticed how old his feet looked, <laughs> uh, uh, would show that you know the person. Sure. Sure. And, and saying you have a very important person or that uh, I really respect this gentleman or he's done so, so much or he doesn't need an introduction is all a way of distancing yourself from the personal aspect of what you're trying to do with a podcast, which is be personal. I'm just starting on this. I love it. Because I always start, I try to start at the beginning. I try to start at the design of an auditorium and where the seats are before I speak, and I comment on that. I comment on whether the first row People are sitting in the first row and how far the first row is from the stage uh, and whether the lectern is on the left or the right or the middle or there's no lectern. Every little thing matters to break down those the, the layers of, even if they're tissue paper, the layers of things between you and another individual of how close you stand to them what you say first, whether you say how's everything going, which is in, an insult because nobody can tell, answer that question. And therefore, you shouldn't have asked the question if you didn't want an answer. And you can't get an answer when you use the word everything or keeping busy, uh, as which is a judgment in itself. You don't know if it's good if you say, yes, you're keeping busy, which says to the person you're still working or no, you're not keeping busy. Then you're a person of leisure. And it, it, there's no answer to that question that is that reasonably moves the conversation and the communication and the the connection between individuals. And, and I'm interested in how much of what one says 
gets through. I watched a speech by Juan Enrique's brilliant, brilliant man who spoke at Harvard was Craig Venter's partner on the first sequencing of the human genome uh, in San Diego. And if I were to introduce him, because his bio is uh, all about his science and the fact that he owns a large and very successful uh, investment company that invests in bio-research things, and he's uh, quite an extraordinary man in many fields. I would say that knowing all that, because that's what comes out in his bio, what gives him these three or four other dimensions is he negotiated the truce in Mexico and Chiapas south of Oaxaca when the Mexico was coming apart about eight, ten years ago. They called him in and he negotiated the truce. Well, isn't that interesting for a scientist and a biologist and a computational biologist to be pulled into that arena? And then that tells you so much more about him as a human being, as well as a scientist, as well as listening to what his speech was. It's all those things that make somebody come through the pores of your skin when you walk away, think away, hear away, you... uh, you have some memory of a, of a human being. So that's all a riff on the word very. I learn something from you, Richard, every single time I talk to you. And I found myself using something that you told me once to explain something to my wife. And that is, when I asked you, how come you wrote 90 books uh, you said it's because it's the way I learn. It's the way I understand things. And you said, I live a very horizontal life that when I learn something and I feel like I've mastered it, I move on. You know, you said most people live a horizontal, a, a vertical life that they start out in the mailroom and with aspirations of one day becoming a CEO, but it's all within the same company. And, and, and they live in silos. He said, I would, I would never and I could never live in a silo. And I knew that about myself very early on. And that's why I wrote 90 books. And I, we're, my sure. wife and I were talking about a mutual friend. And I said, you know, they live a horizontal life. She couldn't understand why somebody was constantly changing and moving on and, and doing new things. And I said, you, you know, you have to give them credit that they recognize the type of person they are, and, and it's a contrarian. So that uh, that's what I know about you, and that's something that I have been able to apply now in my own life in view of others. Well, two or three things you said. First of all, I, 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 have, I do not look down my nose at anybody who goes deep rather than horizontal that goes deeper and deeper in a subject and for what is called great success I'm not just I'm not just talking about financial success but what is, what is identified with great success and in order to, to achieve great success in our society almost certainly you have to go deep you have to play the cello better and better and better you have to do architecture better and better and better and better and you have to try to make more and more money in your field, have more and more successful 
movies invent more and more things that make your what you've done better. You have to do more and more conferences. You have to have bigger and bigger conferences. You have to do one thing and do it very well. And I don't look down my nose at that at all. Uh, I, I just this doesn't happen to be the way I am. Uh, first of all, I'm not that smart that I can go deep into anything. So uh, part of these choices are not made by me out of out of uh, some wondrous guru intellect of saying this is an amazing way to live your life, be horizontal and connect with parts horizontally. It has to do with who I am and what I'm not. I'm not very bright, so I can't go deep into anything. I have a short attention span. So I can't keep on doing the same thing over and over again. And after I do something, it turns out pretty well. I don't want to do it again. Why would I want to do something again if I've done it? Now, that seems like a funny statement in some ways, but in some ways also profound. I've done it. Why do it again? I don't want to be an apple tree and just have more apples every year. Uh, I would like to have a pear. Uh, uh, But I can't if I'm just an apple tree. Uh, and, and, and I don't want to have a better apple. At a certain point, an apple's good enough. Uh, I don't want to, it's just not, it just doesn't interest me to do incremental change in what I'm doing. And I'm satisfied without perfection. I'm satisfied, I'm satisfied just doing a, doing pretty good, solve the problem, move on. So you, and, uh, go ahead. So you understand then the type of person you are. And, that you one day you want an apple and the next day you want a pear. Well, let me just comment on that. You understand, you say that with some thin thin patina of, of, of uh, compliment that you understand who you are. You have to work hard not to understand who you are because you're the only person you're walking around with. Mm-hmm. You really have to work hard at it. People work hard at trying to understand other people. And I don't give a shit about other people. Uh, I just work, want to understand my reactions to things and, and who I am. And that is a full-time job. See, the world, word indulgence is one that we've taken out of our repertoire because it somehow seems selfish. But if you indulge yourself, I don't think there's anything better than indulging yourself because you're indulging your ideas. And if you over-deliver on yourself, the end result might help society. It might not, but it might. It has a chance. The over-delivery of things is what I'm interested in. I want to do everything I do better than expectation. My expectation, and as it turns out, perhaps others. But I'm not trying to over-deliver to others. I just would like to have it turn out that way. So when I ran TED, there was no... Now, this is 1984 mm-hmm. through, through 2002. It, so it goes 1984 to 2003. When I did that, uh, I told people it was, it was the best conference in the world uh, and that uh, I would give them their money back if it wasn't better than I just said. Uh, uh, that if, I, if it wasn't, a, if they weren't surprised and it was a better, if it wasn't better than they thought it would be, then I failed. I just wanted to to, to over deliver, mm-hmm. and at the same time, if you over deliver, I don't have to have PR. I don't have to advertise. I don't have to take uh, please anybody particularly. I don't have to work with anybody. I can just try to make it better 
just better. And the same thing my friend Jack Dangerman with with what he has in uh, with Esri, the, this company that you, nobody has heard of, but that makes more map software than anybody else in the whole world. He plows 30% of everything he makes back into the company and every product he has, nobody can compete with because he over delivers. And therefore he has a growing business. When you take things out and you just deliver good products, you can be knocked off by somebody else with good products. But if you over deliver, it's real hard to, to, uh, well, you're talking about the book, Understanding, Understand. Right. Uh, you, uh, people haven't seen it. I'm not flogging the book. But if you get to see one, which you, likelihood is your listeners won't, because it's not in bookstores, uh, if you have a friend that has one or whatever, uh, you can get it on Amazon, but that's the only place. And you open it and you go through it. It's, uh, it's not a free book, but it's better than expectation. There's more in there than you ever thought. I did more, more stuff in there, more, it's, it's over delivered. So that's it. That's all I was trying to do. It's one of the best books I've ever read. And, and I, I found myself, I will tell you this. I took, I've taken about 15 pages of notes so far. And I must have spent an hour or two on page 15 alone. So this is, I think, it's over 700 pages. It's 54 chapters. But you're, on page 15, you're, you're, you're prologue. Ode to Ignorance. I just want to read something that you wrote on page 15. The most essential prerequisite to understanding is to be able to admit when you don't understand something. Striving to be the dumbest person in the room. Ignorance is an ideal state from which to learn. This is not like a, you know, a quick read. This is something where you, you read a page or a chapter and you have to sit there and let it kind of soak in about what you're writing. And there are 700 pages like this. So is this, let me ask you this, is this a, a culmination of your life's experiences and understanding and the people? Because you have uh, some very notable uh, people who've written chapters in your book or who you've interviewed for your book. Um, is this is this a culmination of everything that you learned? Is it you know a culmination of the eighty nine previous books? No, no, it's not meant to be a autobiography or or a sum up of things. I mean, it is a sum up of some things, but no, I'm I'm working on a couple projects now that maybe are much much smaller but clearer or whatever. Uh, I'm, uh, somebody is writing my biography, but I'm working on it. Now that sounds, you know, indulgent and a, a puff piece, but I'm working on it so it's not a puff piece. I'm asking him to interview a, s- a series of people. I'm not editing it. I'm not going to do any edit to what he writes, except for facts when he doesn't know a fact. He's very good. He's, he's, he knows more about me than I know about me. I'm also giving him and trying to open the door, sometimes with difficulty, to a bunch of people who don't like me uh, and that find fault with my braggadocio, find fault with my personality, find me as a lightweight, uh, not a very serious person, do not like uh, my abrasiveness, uh, people maybe who I have fired. 
And so I'm really asking him to get a good smattering of those people to see a whole different side of me. So purposely or proactively not making it a pub piece. Uh, and so, and the other prerequisite is that the book has to come out before I die because I do want to read it. Uh, well, I know that sounds funny. No, it's, it's, I love this. I, you know, and that's, you are, in my opinion, you are a true original, original thinker. Very, and you, you said once, uh, people, I think it was perhaps I appear, to be a contrarian, actually, I believe everybody else is. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to comment on the word contrarian. <laughs> I think doing that, what I just said, mm-hmm. it's normal. That's what you would want to have in a biography. You want to have people that like the person and don't like the person. You would like to see who the person is. The purpose, the the the, the avowed person purpose of a, of a of a of a biography is not to just say. This is the most, this is the greatest thing invented since cream cheese. Right. It's to understand a person. And you only understand a person by their failures as well as their successes about the people who love them and the people who don't love them or love them with caveats or love a slice of them, but not the rest. So why is it so hard for 99.9% of the world to live like that? I don't give a a fuck. (laughs) That is so uninteresting a question. I don't care about that. All right. It it just has no effect on me at all. I mean, when you see the way, how inefficiently the world operates. I don't see it. I just, I I live a small, I live a very little life. It looks bigger from the outside because I've, in the world's terms, I've accomplished a lot. My, my CV is long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have done lots of books, lots of conferences, lots of, uh, there's lots of things. Uh, I've just done a lot of things. You know, I've been to the jungle, I've been on a, and one of the key words in, in my whole life is the word yes. Somebody asked me whether I want to go on an aircraft carrier, I say yes. Mm-hmm. Somebody wants me to go to the Guatemalan jungle, I say yes. They want me to go here or there, somebody, I say yes. Uh, a lot of those things are awful, uh, but saying yes is is an ex- extends my the this uh, threads of my memory. You know, there's two kinds of uh, uh, I, for instance, I said this a while ago and forgot totally about it. And the person who's writing the book on me just wrote up this quote that I that he read from about 20 years ago, which I had forgotten. And I thought, wow, that's profound. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm going to bring it up again because I like it. This isn't exactly what I said, it's, but it's my, it's the sense of it. That I, there are two kinds of, uh, maybe there's more than two, but two major kinds of, uh, in fact, I already thought of two others. There's two major kinds of, of spider webs. Those that we think are beautiful, the ones that go around in these perfect circles of, of a line that, that extends out uh the web around and around and around and they're held back by points to things and they're just beautiful. We think they're gorgeous. And we think, how, how do they do that? Mm-hmm. They're just brilliant. And we think those, those spiders must be higher up on the evolutionary level because how elegant that is. And then there's cobwebs that we have in the corner of the room and cobwebs here and cobwebs there, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that must be a lower, a lower life kind of. Spider that does those cobwebs, because cobwebs are kind of ugly, we think. 
they're not elegant, they're not symmetrical, they're not geome- you know, geometric that we can, we don't use them symbolically to represent spider. They're more like steel wool. Mm-hmm. Well, I believe it turns out that the cobweb is along the line of the evolution of the spider is much further, much more along the line of how they evolved. And it's way past its like, so to speak, we are the chimpanzees. But, uh, but that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is that if you want to uh, think about memory and your brain, which is the big issue, one of the big, one of, one of the fundamental uh, uh, investigations today as far as the language of the brain. We have the language of the body, which is DNA, and we have language of our invention, which is the alphabet, and, and zero, one, zero, one, zero, one. That's all an alphabet. Uh, and then we have DNA, which we put together now in four-letter, four-letter and five-letter pieces, or mostly four-letter pieces, that can disp- you can make any kind of living form, any leaf, any human being, anything that's alive. And now we're looking at the brain and we're far off from solving the brain. But as much as we know about the brain, we would think that all our whole memory and all the connections of the brain, and, and it's much more like a copper. And you actually, to follow up on that... <laughs> my whole thing, it's an ode to a copper. You, you said... And I think this is a quote. The fundamental failure of most graphic product, architectural, and even urban design is its insistence on serving the God of looking good rather than the God of being good. Yeah. So I, I, I think we, we all suffer from that. Yeah. That's all right. You know, another buildings, it sells cars, it sells dresses, it sells people. Exactly. Exactly. And And that's fine. I am not angry. I'm, I'm, I'm not marching against that. I don't do marches. I don't. I'm not trying to change anybody's mind. I don't. I don't care enough about them. <laughs> and and I appreciate that. But l- let me let me pivot just slightly on. That. I find it amusing that you're interested. I you know as I was saying, I just live. I, I moved this last move. Uh, as you know, I'm 83, past 80. And, uh, I lived for 20 years up in Newport, Rhode Island, and moved there from New York City. Everybody thought, why would I move to Newport? I mean, nothing was happening there. Well, I moved there because nothing was happening, and I didn't know a soul. But after 20 years, nothing was happening, and I didn't know a soul, and I wanted to go some other, and I knew a few people, didn't like them, and decided I would go someplace where I, where nothing was happening, and I didn't know anybody, and it didn't snow. <laughs> And that's the whole reason of going to Miami. It's nothing else. It's not profound. It's not that it's a great place. It's that I have a very nice house, and uh, I have my doggies, and nobody stops by. Well, I'm going to stop by the next time I'm in Florida. Call ahead. I promise I will. Let me let me talk to you a little bit about uh, information anxiety, which you talk about. Uh, quite a bit. You are the father of information architecture. And today... It was a title of a book I read, wrote 40 years ago, 30 years ago. Which is incredible when, when you think about it. And, and looking at uh, what is happening today with big data and the way we can capture more information than we ha- ever have in, in recorded history, 
Um, you, you said two things, which I want to I want to read right now. Information anxiety is the black hole between data and knowledge, and it happens when information doesn't tell us what we want to or need to know. The other thing you said is one of the most anxiety-inducing side effects of the information era is the feeling that you have to know it all. That I see that every single day. I see that with entrepreneurs. I see it with corporate executives. I see it with parents. You know, the the feeling that that somehow we're not acting on. You know, we need more information. It's almost like paralysis by analysis that we can't make a decision because we don't have all the information yet. Well, I guess about more, uh, a healthy lifetime ago, probably 65 years ago, something like that. If I'm 83, maybe it's 67 years. It's not as bad. But I had a lot of conversations with my papa. Mm-hmm. My papa didn't go to, to college. My papa was a simple man. He made cigars. Uh, he chose tobacco, how to blend them. He went to Cuba and Puerto Rico. He bought tobacco. And he was in charge of how they made. He didn't own the company. He just worked making cigars his whole life. And his father before him made cigars from the old country. That's all they did. That's all he knew about was cigars. Cigars and lousy murder mysteries kind of thing. A little bit of history and current events. And he was very good at arithmetic. He never knew what I did, but we had intense conversations at the dinner table. My older brother was uh, very smart in, in the learning way, in the school way, and he memorized things. So he was one of those uh, whiz kids kind of guy who was on the whiz kid radio programs on, you know, and he was a whiz kid or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, my father said, you don't have to know things, you have to know how to find them. He would have been like a pig in shit today to realize that you can hold up your iPhone and find out things. Uh, and it wasn't really a matter of having to know it. There was no, no penalty of not knowing if you knew how to find efficient. And that largely we're a find it society. We find things. What Google is is finding things. That's all we're, we're trying to find things and make connections. We, uh, we don't have the Encyclopedia Britannica anymore. We don't use libraries anymore. We use Alexa and we use you know, we use our, uh, our uh, Google, and we talk to it and write things in it. And I use it a lot. And we talk to people. We, we have around ourselves people that we can pick up a phone and ask them a question. We are constantly trying to find things to find so that we can put them together and see patterns. And that's what Watson and Crick did. They finally put the patterns together that they saw on a photograph as well as in bigger toy model. And they discovered that the whole helix, they find that science is about, it's about seeing those patterns from the stuff that you, 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 uh, you are in. Now, if you think everything we see is information and then you don't understand it, you feel anxiety. Right. Uh, and so what we should be rewarding are the people who know how to ask the smart questions. That's that's where you you get understanding. Well, there's two words we do. We've just used question and information. Mm-hmm. Most information does not inform, and most questions don't have a quest. 
if I say to you, how's everything going? There's no quest there. I really am not going to find out anything from that question. Because you can't tell them how everything is going. It's going to be meaningless. It's a meaningless question. But if you have an informed quest, the big, biggest part of the word information and the biggest part of the word question, if you put those two together, an informed quest, in other words, ask a good question. Mm-hmm. Ask a question that has a quest and have it answered in a way that informs you. Uh, I, I think that would be helpful. It leads to understanding. It's what I try to do. So it, the, your questions should have a, a be a means to an end. Uh, stop using the word should, have to, must. You know, eh, nothing has to be anyway. It, it, it's a, it's a, it would be an interesting path to go down, and it would make your life different. It would improve your life. I don't go for the absolute stuff or making a judgment and saying you should do this. I mean, every politician, everybody is saying we have to have more of this. We, we you know, we have to feed the poor. We have to do this. We have to cut off the top of that mountain. We have to get rid of this country. We have to stop guns. We have to. We must. We must do the Me Too thing. We must put everybody in jail. We must get everybody out of jail. We must not kill people for murder. We must kill people for murder. Everybody has an absolute on every opinion. Mm-hmm. I don't. You try to do good work. Are there companies, any companies that you look at today and feel like they understand understanding? Yeah, I think Jack's company, I think ESRI, that nobody will know what I'm talking about. So it's a meaningless answer for me to give. Uh, I believe deeply that uh, the ESRI, uh, in the work with Global Information Systems and their passion to make uh, everything takes place someplace. Everything takes place someplace. Mm-hmm. Whether it's uh, uh, the Ebola uh, epidemic or it's uh, how much people make someplace or where wars are or uh, how long you live, everything takes place someplace. And that's his business of making that understandable and making it easy to do it and systematizing it with the appropriate and advancing technologies. Well, that's a, I think he does a good job. Okay. In chapter 46. That doesn't mean he's the only one doing it. It's the one I'm the most, I'm the closest to. I, I, I have no vested interest because there is no vested interest. He owns the company 100% himself. Okay. So I have no vested interest. I'm not selling it. Okay. Just a couple more things about the, the book, too. I mean, what I love about it is there's a chapter on Monopoly. Well, there's yeah, a, well, think about Monopoly. You're 10 years old, and we've never learned about greed, working together, working uh, competitively, about money, about what paper money is, what millions are, what thousands are, about the various highlights of a various city. There's about 70 or 80 boards the original one was Atlantic City. We didn't think about those railroads and the names of the railroads and the boardwalk and Park Place and Vernon Court and all those places you learn about. You didn't learn about, you know, going to jail, getting out of jail. We just didn't have any sense of those things. We you start playing Monopoly and at 10 years old, the first time, all of those things, competition, working together, working apart, being nasty, conniving, getting two people together to bump off another guy. <laughs> All the values that we use to live our life, you learned in Monopoly. Never in school, never before, and never afterwards, except you applied them afterwards. 
I, I don't think many people look at it that way, but since you, you know, since you explained it, I, I probably agree. And I think I would say risk is a close second. You ever play that game risk? Yeah. yeah. We, used, we used to love that growing up. You didn't start with risk. You started with monopoly. You did. You did. Risk was a little more complicated, yeah. I think, than, than Monopoly. And it's just interesting that it's so, it was so popular because it really developed a series of all kinds of uh, value systems for us. And that's why I have it in there is that the unexpected things in our life often are quite important. And, uh, and then part of my life is the man who owns Monopoly is a friend of mine. What so, about, look, it's also all my connections. It's my life. It's a slice of my life. I mean, the people that I talk to in, in the book, whether it's David Blaine or it's mm-hmm. Frank Gehry or it's this person or Alan Hassenfeld, who owns Hasbro, who owns Monopoly, all come from my circle of friends, and the circle of friends comes from these things that I've discovered that people do. I thought your David Blaine chapter was interesting about about reverse engineering when he was burping up the frogs. Yeah, a, <laughs> I, I, I was just with David about three weeks ago. I guess that's the thing about this book and why I found it so fascinating is that um, it looks at the the normal and not the normal, but the everyday things that we do in life, and it it completely strips it down. And it looks at its core of, and and it gets to the understanding. It gets to the kind of the 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 essence of why we do what we do, or how we should be doing things differently, and how maybe a contrarian point of view would help shed light on why we keep running into the same wall time and time again, or accept what profound normalcy is instead of con- contrarian. The normal, I feel, uh, my wife dislikes this a great deal. Uh, I call myself hyper-normal. Mm-hmm. I think I am more normal than you are. <laughs> uh, okay. reaction to things, I feel, is normal. That it is normal when I'm afraid, when I'm, when I'm feeling good, when I'm feeling bad, when I don't understand something, when I say it. When I say something that seemingly is inappropriate to somebody, mm-hmm. I feel what I'm doing is having no filter between my brain and my mouth and my being. And to me, that is normal. It turns out that most of society thinks it's abnormal. And, I was, go ahead. I was just going to say that. I, like, you have, you have no filter. And, right. and, and that can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. Oh, but- it's been very, it's been very harmful to me for, for a great deal of my life. But uh, I wouldn't be me. So you've always never had a filter. I don't think I've been any dis- different since first grade. I am told by people who have known me now dead, but told maybe ten years ago they're still alive uh, that 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 I hadn't changed since first grade to the best of their memory. That's that is uh, that, that may explain a lot. But there's learning in that. I think when we when we apply filters to what we're trying to understand, I don't think we get to the true essence of the meaning of what we're looking at. It might be so, but I'm not trying. I, 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 the one thing that's, that automatically comes out of this kind of conversation, Brian, is that I'm giving advice and I'm not. Or I'm saying what I'm doing works. <laughs> I'm not. 
I'm saying this is what I'm doing, and you should do what you're doing. I'm not holding myself up in any way as an example that works or doesn't work. No, but what you say, but what you say for the people who are struggling or the people who are uh, I'm terrified all the time. I are sh- you really? I am always terrified. What, what would you be terrified about? Not doing good enough work, satisfying myself. Not okay. a good enough idea. I'm terrified of life. I'm terrified of each thing that I do uh, because nothing is ever good enough. So it's terrifying. But so it, I, it, yours is the only opinion that matters to you. Yeah, so you, yeah. I mean, I think with this this book and some other projects, there's four or five other people I would think I would like it. If, I would like they they felt it was okay. But I don't need much more than that. I don't have to sell copies of it. It hasn't been, I haven't sent it to any reviewer. Uh, there are some reviews on, uh, Amazon that people have just put up on Amazon. But I didn't, I didn't handle that. I mean, I didn't, uh, connive for them to do that. I'm very pleased some people put up reviews. And I'm very pleased that the reviews were wonderful. But I didn't do that. And I don't have a PR person. I don't do book parties, and I don't do book tours, and I don't have an agent. I tried to have an agent, but it didn't work. So I, I want to talk to you about comfort zones, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. I study comfort zones a lot, in, and I look at some of the greatest thinkers, some of the greatest artists, musicians, people in business, and I think the one common thread among all of them is that they all live on the edge or the periphery of their universes. And whether it's through anxiety or, or like you say, being terrified that you wouldn't do the best job, they, do, they don't have comfort zones because they're afraid if they get comfortable, they won't achieve what they were meant to do in life. Do you have a comfort zone? I think you are uh, absolutely correct that comfort was sold to us by our parents, our teachers, and society, that what we seek is comfort, and comfort is not your friend. Wow. You're 100% right. That is what everybody is looking for. You know, it's funny. My mother said to me, I remember. I think I, there's a whole thing in, in, in understanding, understanding about comfort because I'm, I, I talk about comfort a good bit. So I assume I put it in the book, but I might not have. If you have, I, I haven't gotten through all 700 pages. Well, I'm I, just I, saying, I, don't mean, I couldn't find it. I was looking for something in the book the other day and couldn't find it. Right. Uh, so, no, I'm not saying it's absolutely in the book, but I believe it is because I talk about it enough. But when I got laid, I got laid off from my uh, job in, in 1998. And, uh, I remember it was the first time it ever happened to me. I was, uh, 34. And I had a wife, three kids, a mortgage. And, uh, you know, financial, I was going to be okay. But just the sheer terror that I, I thought I did the best possible job I could. And I still, my job was eliminated. And I remember just, I gathered all my things and I, drove home and on the way home I called my mother who is one of the smartest people I know and I said to her I said uh, you know I I explained what happened and she said okay well you'll find another job meanwhile I thought you know the best I'm ever going to do is you know cashier at a fast food restaurant Um, but I said you know okay well ma I, I, I have a mortgage I have three little kids I said I'm worried about security 
She said to me, the only security you will ever need in life is between your ears. And what I, that changed my life. That allowed me to eventually start my own company because I realized that there is no such thing. Security is an illusion, as is comfort, because the second you get comfortable, you know, you're going to get disrupted. You're going to get knocked out of your comfort zone, and then you'll struggle every day to get back into it. Well, I um, at 45, I was destitute. And I didn't even have the comfort of being able to say what you said. Financially, you were okay. I had nothing. And then what, what happened? Well, uh, I had nothing because I, I had a little architectural office in Philadelphia, and we weren't doing well. We decided to close it. I had no savings. My first wife, I had two kids. Uh, I have no skills, no skill set. I can't type. I can't read hard books. I can't use a computer very much at all. There were no smartphones. 45 now. That's 45. I'm 83. You see, it's yeah. almost 40 years ago, right? 38. Mm-hmm. Long time ago. Long time ago. Some people, if anybody's listening to that, this thing, he might not even be 38. Uh, and it was 38 years ago. Yeah. Uh, I made two phone calls to the head of architecture at USC and the head of architecture at UCLA. And I said, I need a favor just for a short time. I need to be a visiting professor so I can have some something come in. It's the only thing I knew how to do. They both gave me jobs. So I was visiting professor for one semester only, visiting professor at USC and UCLA. I moved from Philadelphia out west. I got a, a, uh, a third floor uh, flop house. Drunks on the floor, pay by the week. No furniture at all. I had to go to some people I knew out there and get a mattress, no sheets, no pillowcase, no anything like that. Got a black and white TV. I used a hanger for the aerial, and that was the only furniture in the room. And uh, a friend of mine was in the used car business, and he connected me with somebody in the used car business, and I got a a little Mercury convertible. I love that car for, for a semester. And I, it was, and I lost a lot of weight because I didn't, I didn't have any money. I had one meal a day. I had a Western omelet every morning. And I walked, uh, not for exercise. I walked because I was, you know, I was just in a different place. I walked up and down the, the Venice boardwalk there for a long time. So, so, and, that- and then I, uh, uh, I sort of found the fact that by the end of the journey out there that uh, that the very I met a lot of people nobody knew at all what I did or what I was thinking but they thought I had a decent reputation I should just move ahead and do things and it gave me enough I didn't have a windfall power it gave me enough faith that when I went back to uh, Philadelphia Mm-hmm. Got something to do for a little while, and then something came up for me to do in LA. And uh, I never had a windfall profit. Uh, I just, after a year or so, I just had more money at the end of the year than I had in the beginning. So, um, did that change you? Did the the being becoming destitute change you in any way? Change me. Everything changes you in some way. It didn't change me any more than anything else changed me. 
I mean, sure, I changed, but I changed. I would have changed if it hadn't happened. I would have changed if I got hit by a car. I would have changed everything. <laughs> but but it 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 count has changed. That was a profound change. It was another thing. It was it just added to the fact that I was a survivor. But I yes. was doing exercise and surviving from when I was eighteen. I begged my way across the United States. I lived on an island off of what I could catch. I lived in the jungle of Guatemala for six months. I camped across Europe. There's different things I did that tested my fact that I could survive. So I was always testing that. This wasn't just was just another thing. It was just another test. But people don't want to I'm test themselves. Not people. I, I I know that. But I'm, what I'm, thinking, what, I'm, but I'm giving me examples of what other people do or don't do. And those examples, even if uh, I do the same as what everybody does or different, it's of no interest to me that people do this or people do that. I, I don't think, do you see what I'm saying? It's not part of my conversation. If you say people don't test themselves, I say, yeah, right. Sometimes people don't blow their nose. It's that important. But the the interesting thing is when, when you you got to that point in your life at 45. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but here's my question. Is the idea of a comfort zone had to be appealing? The, the idea of this false sense of security that you could crawl back into and... and No, I wasn't comfortable up to then and I was just less comfortable. I never, I never had anything set. You know, all you have, when you go, when you cross the street, you do it by yourself. I always felt that. Were there other times in your life? I mean, to me, you know, I, I've so I went bankrupt. Uh, I had a, a pub, print publishing company, and uh, during the Great Recession in two thousand eight, nine, and ten, I lost everything. And I remember thinking to myself, "Okay, this, this is really, um, you know, having a profound impact on my life." Because at that time, now I had four kids two dogs and a, and a mortgage and my kids were getting ready to go to college uh-huh. and and I went back into corporate America that's when I met you when I was at the Wall Street Journal and uh, but I said to myself I, I have a plan for my life I know I have a meaning in my life and I have a plan for my life and I map it out and I said to my wife I'm going to be going back into corporate America but it's for two years at most because, uh, in fact, a mutual friend of ours, the person who introduced us, said to me that, you know, some people were born to be entrepreneurs and some people were born to, to work in corporate America, and you were born to be an entrepreneur. And that was the, the really the catalyst for me going out on my own in, in 2012. So the, the, you know, the bankruptcy and losing my company and losing almost everything really knocked me to my knees but I said to myself you know this doesn't change the goal it makes it harder but it doesn't change ultimately why I want to go in my life and I've, I've never been one for a comfort zone either well that's I mean I, I your story is a healthy story and it's not a it might be an extreme uh, by going bankrupt and getting to zero but in, in some ways, virtually everybody has this embrace with some failure or not. And 
how lovingly they embrace it or whether they're ashamed of it or how, how they want to come out of it is who they become. Well, that's what it is. <laughs> that's what life is. Life is things that work, things that don't work, and flatline. <laughs> uh, it, it is. You know, we, yeah. all, we all see that in the people we know. And they're not all way, one way or the other. And I, I don't, I don't admire or think higher of an entrepreneur than I do somebody who is in, in corporate America. So I, I probably couldn't do either. I don't think I can do much of anything. I don't, I, I think at this moment in history, of course I'm so old that nobody expects any people are amazed that I fly by myself now. I think, whoa, that's really crazy. Uh, I mean, I don't fly up in the air myself. I take planes by myself. Right. And uh, uh, I haven't flown by myself with wings for quite a while. That was a joke. Um, <laughs> I haven't levitated for a while. Right, uh, right. The, the, the differences are remarkable. Uh, when, just when you think there is a cookie-cutter family, like a cover of Post magazine, Mm-hmm. Or, or a uh, Norman Rockwell cover, which is a, a Norman Rockwell painting, as it would have been on the cover of Post magazine. When you think there's any cookie cutter thing, and you go, you dig a little bit into anybody's life, it's fascinatingly different. Not necessarily wonderful or astonishingly interested, interesting, but just not cookie cutter. You get any two people together, man and a woman, or a man and man, or whatever the family unit is made up of today, woman and woman. But you get two people together, it is so complex of what happens in that interaction and the needs that come from that and the family and the responsibilities. And then you have children and all that and the finances and, and where you then decide to live because of where you work or whether both are working. And it's so complex that I don't think you can have an advice show. You can't have a book that covers it. Each one is so, so different. Yet yet they appear cookie cutter because of their filters? The Dr. Phil can give advice, and I don't, you know, I think he really does damage. Right, right. I want to talk about one, uh, one other chapter in your book, Ecclesiastes. Yeah. What, what made you add that to the book? Oh, several reasons. Uh, it's beautifully written. With yes. I'm an atheist, so it has no religious overtones. Which is why, I, and I know that about you, so I thought it was very interesting that you would add it. Well, you don't have to be an historian to like Shakespeare. True. You like it because it's a good piece of writing, or you don't have to like England, or whatever. It, it, you don't have to be uh, uh, loving Egypt to like Aida. Well, what? you don't have to be religious to like Ecclesiastics. God did not write Ecclesiastics. <laughs> right. So somebody wrote it and did a hell of a job. And it sums up a lot of things about looking forwards and looking backwards in life. Um, okay. La- last chapter then. Dogs. <laughs> now, I, I was not a dog lover growing up. We didn't have dogs in my house. Uh-huh. And uh, and I know you, you hated dogs, uh, according to some of the things that I've I read that you said. Uh, I, I now have three dogs, and I had two that have since passed. But 
tell tell me about your now love because I, I know you love your dogs. Yeah. Right? I love, I love the dogs and I love the phenomena of loving dogs and I love the uh, irrationality of having dogs and the irrationality of creating an animal, which is what human beings did. This, dog, this animal never existed. We created an animal to do what we wanted it to do, uh, you know, not to talk and to uh, depend on us totally and to have around and feel the, the comfort of loneliness. And so I like, I like that, and then I watch the fact that it makes me what I think is more human and more loving, and I love my dogs. And the irrationality. It's a daily irrational thing that we do having dogs. They're expensive. They're everything that you would not say, you would not invent, something you couldn't talk to, give advice that was totally dependent on you, that you're buying a tragedy because it's going to die in a few years. They don't live long. And so everything about it is counterintuitive, and yet we we there's 75 million dogs in Mexico. That's what I love about you, Richard. I love how you put something so simple as dogs, and and, and you take a, a an approach to it that nobody I know would say. So um, See, I, I can't was, imagine saying anything but what I just said. Right, right, which is why um, I, I remember, you may, may or may not remember this, but I brought my son in when uh, we met in New York City, and we had, we split a, a corned beef sandwich in yeah. your hotel room. <laughs> and uh, afterward, I walked out with my son. I said, so what do you think? He said, Dad, he is the funniest guy I ever met. <laughs> So you made an impression on him, and I'm going to share your book. That's with you. the biggest compliment, of course, you can give a Jew is saying that. <laughs> I don't have any memory of being. Nor do I. I try a little bit to be funny, but I'm, I don't. I don't try hard to be funny. Right. Well, you, you made you made a big impression on him. He uh, he couldn't stop laughing. He actually quoted about a half a dozen things that you oh, said. Oh, that's sweet. That's a, that's a very sweet thing to say. Tell him I really that would that really feel that feels nice. Um, I want to thank you for your time today. I want to thank you for allowing me to talk to you and to to see you periodically over the last six, seven years. I, I do hope when I get to Florida that I will call you in advance. And if you're home, I'd love to, uh, to have some lunch or a, a meal with you and talk more. Richard, thank you for everything. Have a great day. And I look forward to talking again soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Small Business Edge podcast with Brian Moran, sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Please visit our website, smallbusinessedge.com, for a listing of future podcasts.